This morning, our message speaks to us about um, sort of a little bit more of what that kingdom looks like. And in this story this morning, it challenges us a little bit because um, Christ is really saying that oftentimes the kingdom of God is much bigger than our familiar world. That it's much bigger than our comfortable world. It's much bigger than our, uh, you know, sort of the things that we quote unquote approve. And you're going to see how Jesus interacts with some people in some uncomfortable ways uh, that challenge the people around him and should also challenge us how we think about God's kingdom and where it is coming and how we are a part of it. So to that end, um, let's pray that God might move through the speaking of his word and continue to grow in us an idea of what the kingdom of God is. Father, meet us this morning through the power of your word. I pray in Jesus' name that we hear you speak. I pray, Lord, that, um, that I truly am not, that this is your work, not mine. And that, Lord, what it is that is said here is of your glory, and if not, then it may not be spoken. I pray, Lord, that um, through the power of your spirit, you touch our hearts wherever it is we might be. If we need words of comfort, Lord, bring comfort. If we need words of hope, give us hope. If we need words of admonishment and to get a good kick in the pants, Lord, may you do that according to your will and for your glory. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, you should know that I'm from Canada, yeah? You know, I'm from Canada. I'm Canadian by birth. I was born in uh, Brockville, Ontario, Canada. I lived the first 12 years of my life in a little town called Smith's Falls, Ontario. Has anyone ever been to Smith's Falls? Is there anyone? And I'm looking. No, you haven't. My Canadian friends have not been to Smith's Falls because there's a couple Canadians in the room. So none of you have been there. Praise God for that. Um, Smith's Falls is a depressing place. The only person in the room actually who's been there is Kristen. And when she and I went there, and it was a long, long time ago, she was not at all impressed. Let me just say that. It's a small little town that the railroad left about 50 years ago. And it is, in many ways, a very depressed town. There's a lot of uh, poverty. There's a lot of um, issues that go along with things like alcoholism and abuse and a lot of sort of stuff. Um, And praise God, when I was 12, my family left there to move to another city closer to Toronto in Canada. Um, And it was a very different situation there. Um, But uh, my brother, you all know I have an older brother, right? He's three years older than I am. Did you know he's a pastor? My older brother is a pastor in Michigan, and Jonathan, my older brother, has been back to Smith Falls way more than I have. He's been back there, I think, probably about 20 or 30 times in the 30 or or so years since we've left. And um, it's really interesting what he perceives when he goes there and what I perceive. Uh, in part because I didn't have really great friends there. I didn't keep up with any of my friends. He did. And so when he goes back, he really connects well with some people. And because of his age, he's almost 50, he's 49. um, He's really at that age where a lot of people that he went to high school with are now in positions of authority, positions of success, positions of, of business strength in this little town of Smith Falls, which is really interesting because when I go back, nobody remembers me, which is fine by me. When he goes back, like the whole crowd gets together. 
There's the guy, he's the mayor, his name is Dennis. Dennis calls a whole group of friends, there's about 10 friends that get together when my brother comes, and they all sit around in my brother's, or Dennis's house, and talk about life, and Jonathan tells them about his life and his ministry, and they tell them about their lives, and generally their lives are very much a mess, and when Jonathan comes, he's told this to me, um, it's almost like I'm speaking God's words to them. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I need to do. Oh yeah, that's a good idea, Jonathan. Or this is where I need to go and this is how I need to live my life. They've actually asked him a couple times to move to Smith Falls and start a church there. And he has wisely said no. You know why he said no? Because if he were there, he would be the voice of God. And he would be that person to them. And they would, in a sense, almost, worship the ground that he walks on. And he realizes that as a pastor, that's a really bad idea. It's a really bad idea to have people who believe in you and support you and trust you that much that you can say or do anything and they'll be behind you 100%. And he said to me, every time they ask, there's a little nudge because it would be really fun to be in church with all my friends. But I realized I can't do it because if I did it, it would be bad for me and it would be bad for ministry. In our story this morning from Luke chapter 4, Christ is actually getting called into a little bit of a Smith's Falls experience. He's getting called back to Nazareth um, he, the spirit is moving and calls him back to Nazareth and, and in, the, in the province of Galilee. And this, for him, is sort of his hometown. It's where he, he started and it's where he grew up. And in being called back, he's um, surrounded by people who've known him for a long time. At this point in his life, Christ is about 30 years old. And these people have known him since he was a child. They knew Joseph and Mary when he was growing up. And so they sort of have a picture of what his life is like. And now he's really beginning to get some momentum in ministry. So he's a hometown boy, done good. And so he comes back to the Galilee, comes back to Nazareth. And this is what happens beginning chapter 4 of uh, Luke, beginning at verse 14. It says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit News about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and listen to this, and everyone praised him. So he's returned to his home turf, and in going back to his home turf, he's welcomed as a welcoming hero. Now, remember who these people are in Nazareth. These are generally very sort of simple, uneducated Jews. These are not the religious elite. These are people who are living day-to-day lives as fishermen or farmers or um, stonecutters or the basic uh, necessities of building things and creating things. These are not people who are teachers of the law or are, are highly educated. And they've been in this this situation of oppression from Rome for generations, right? Or for, for a long time. They've known oppression for a really long time. And over and over and over again in the history of this Nazareth, this Galilean province, they've been longing for what? The Messiah to come. 
Because the Messiah is the Old Testament teaching of God. If you want to go back to things like Isaiah. In fact, Jesus is going to speak about Isaiah in a moment. Or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or all those Old Testament prophets. The promised Messiah was going to come. And the people of of Galilee are longing for that. They're hoping, please come, please come. But for generations, they'd been given false hope. Different times, in different places, false Messiahs had been raised up. There had been people in this part of the country, in Jerusalem, who were supposedly the Messiah. There were people over in Jericho who were supposedly the Messiah. There were people who had political power. There were people who had military power, and they were supposedly the Messiah. But now, all of a sudden, they have one whose hometown. Jesus is from them. This is their guy. If we're going to have a Messiah, we want this one, right? We want the familiar And they like it. And they love him. And they praise him. And you can almost sense like when Jesus walks in the room, like, I mean, that's the thing. He, they make him like he is the voice of God. But he is the voice of God. They're willing to worship him. But the question that we have to ask is, are they willing to believe? In him. And that's the challenge that Jesus is confronted with as he engages in some conversation with them. They're ready to worship Jesus as a political Messiah, but are they willing to believe in him as their spiritual Messiah? And Jesus makes it complicated because he actually affirms their hope. Look what it says in verse 16 it says this He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're waiting for a Messiah, don't those sound like really good words? Like, this is the guy. He's affirming it. And then he rolled up the scroll and he makes it clear, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, he's making the claim. He's making it clear. You're looking for him? I am him. And he does that very clearly by even living into the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition was on the Sabbath that you would come together in the synagogue and one of the rabbis would stand and read scripture with their head covered and they would do it and they would do it so that the people could hear and then they would expound on what it is that they wanted to say. Now we hear this, we hear today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and we think that's the whole sermon. It's not. Okay, It's not the whole sermon. He has much more that he says about the prophet Isaiah. It's clear as we read the text that he had other things, but that was the key point. He was affirming his messiahship, but then he was saying to them these other things. But because he had said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, it was almost like they caught on to that one message. It didn't matter what else he said, which I know some of you have. 
If I say one thing, you catch on to that one thing, and I keep talking, and at that point, it's Charlie Brown, the teacher, on wah, 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 right? Because you're focused on that one thing. That's really what happened here. They'd heard those words, and we're jumping into those words that we've got the guy. And that's a real temptation. It's a real temptation for all leaders when those moments come. To really affirm what people want to hear. It's, it's to, in a sense, play to your, the, the strength of your audience. You know, we, we, we hear that sometimes. We certainly know that that happens in politics, right? That people know who their audience is, and so they say certain things in a certain context to play to their audience. But that's not the only place that it happens. I believe very much that it happens here, the pulpit. That there are times, and I have, I have, I know leaders, unfortunately, like this. Christian leaders who have said to congregations things that they know will affirm what it is that people already believe in order to, in sense, strengthen their base. That it may or may not have as much to do with this as it is with getting support and not upsetting people too much. Now, I hope you understand, friends, that I'm not afraid of upsetting you. I'm really not. And in fact, I'm not, I will say this, one of my greatest, one of, one of the things that I, I take one of the greatest sources of pride in is that there are people who are very liberal in the church, and you can take that, use that word in a lot of different ways, and I have upset those people. And there are people who are very conservative in the church, and I have upset those people. And I take great pride that I've gone to both edges and I've upset them. Because I don't want to be afraid of saying something that's in here for the sake of making sure that you're comfortable where you are. And that you're comfortable writing your tithing check. That you're comfortable coming to church and attending the ministry here. I don't want that. In fact, I would be unfaithful as a leader. And that's the tension that Christ is living in here. Because if you are going to be a political Messiah, if you are going to be a military Messiah, what do you need? You need support. You need people who are willing to get your back, willing to hold you up, willing to protect you, willing to provide the funds to support whatever is next. And Jesus is, is he's setting it up in such a way that he shows them that's not what it's about for him at all. In fact, for him, it's simply about being faithful to pursuing the kingdom of God. Let's see how he begins to challenge their understanding of who he is. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked, still supporting, still excited. And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Christ is understanding that these people are looking for him to, to live into that Messiahship in a way that will encourage their support. But then he gives them a little nudge. 
Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Christ is challenging their idea of what a Messiah is. He's saying, for you, a Messiah is one who looks like you. It's a kingdom that looks like a kingdom that you can support. It's an image that you have created in your own mind of what things should look like in the future of God's plan for his redemption, transformation of creation. But God has shown, Jesus is telling the people, that it's not just about you. Look at the illustrations that he uses in order to strengthen his teaching. He says, in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, severe famine throughout the land. Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow of Zarephath, a non-Jew. This is a person who's outside of the support base of Galilee, of Nazareth, of Israel. And Naaman was a commander in, in, in a completely different country's military. And yet, Christ is saying that God was willing to heal him of his leprosy, even though there were plenty of other Jewish lepers moving around. What Christ is saying is, don't look at the kingdom of God as that comfortable group of people. And here's where it starts to get challenging. Look what he says in Isaiah. Go back there. Let's look at that. It's in verse 18. It says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's kingdom, what he's saying here, Christ is saying here, is much bigger than the comfortable. God's kingdom is for the poor. God's kingdom is for the oppressed. God's kingdom is for the prisoner. It's opening the doors of the jail and saying, there is freedom for you now in the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you. I'm just going to speak for me. That idea of kingdom scares me. It scares me a little bit. Because here's some things that I know. I know that working with the poor... And loving the poor and being a part of God's plan for the poor is not easy work. Does anyone think that's easy work? I'm telling you right now, it's not. It's messy. It's hard. It's challenging. Certainly Ross and Sandy know that in their ministry. We know that here. Working with the poor and working with the oppressed. That means people who are, who, people who are victims of injustice. How do we do that, right? How does that happen? How does that happen for the people who is the immigrant? 
How does that happen for the people who are victims of of exploitation of some sort? How does that happen for people who are still victims of, of slavery and some of the other issues that we know are in our culture? That's not easy stuff. We know that in our culture, those are incredibly complex conversations. And yet, that's what the kingdom of God that we hear is, is about here. Welcome to the hard stuff, folks. Because that's what the kingdom is. It means that things like the conversations that we've had this week, we can't just sit on the sidelines and say, I'm not going to watch the news. I'm not going to worry about it. But we need to enter into it. But I'll tell you, that's terrifying. I don't even know what I would say here about what happened this week at the Capitol building. I don't even know how I would navigate that. Because I know in saying it, there would be people who would be upset no matter what was said. I know that there would be people who would disagree or agree no matter what I said. But it doesn't mean that we ignore. It means that we instead are willing to enter into those sorts of conversations. Frankly, I don't think this is the place for it. But you know what it is? The coffee shop. It's, it's sometime in the fellowship hall. It's out in the parking lot. It's being willing to walk into because here's the problem. You know what this week brings up? Of course, we know. It's that there are victims of sexual assault who are fearful to tell their story. We know that. We know that from this week. And if that's the case, then we as the kingdom of God say that person is oppressed and the scripture here says the kingdom of God is for the oppressed. How do we help people be able to talk about this difficult subject? How do we help people talk about what is true justice even in this situation? How do we think about justice? And those are not easy things. And it's not easy to get all of a sudden everybody on the same page. I guarantee you it's not going to happen. Just open your Facebook feed and you're going to find that out really quickly. No one's on the same page in some ways. We're all in different places. And Christ is saying here, friends, that's the complexity of the kingdom of God. And if we're going to be involved with it, it's not just about making it look like we do. It's not just about making sure that it's something that we are comfortable with. And you see how the people respond. Look at the last three verses. As soon as Jesus makes them uncomfortable, how they respond. All the people in the synagogue were, what? What does it say? Hold on, the last words, and if I look back, it says says this. uh, All spoke well, verse 22. All spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious words that come from his lips. And now, all of a sudden, just a couple of verses later, without any preamble, we hear they are furious. Do you know why? Because it's saying the kingdom of God doesn't look exactly the way you think it should be. The kingdom of God is bigger than your image of it. The people are turning here against him because they're saying this. This is not the Messiah that we want. This is not the kingdom that we want. And this is not my promised land. But Jesus is saying that that's God. That's the promised land that I have for you where justice is real. 
where the oppressed are heard and liberated, where the poor are given hope for a future, where life comes from death, where there's wholeness from brokenness in all the different messy places of life. And not just, and hear me friends, I love y'all, I love many of us who, for whom this is true, not just in our white, suburban, solid, nuclear family culture. That's not the only place for the kingdom of God. It's not. And I know that some of you know that. I understand that. But enacting that kingdom becomes more challenging. It becomes more challenging because it takes us into hard places, into the hard conversations. See, the kingdom of God is for people who are against the nominated Supreme Court justice. And the kingdom of God is for those. Or for, for those who are for the nominated Supreme Court justice. Kingdom of God is for the Republicans. Kingdom of God is for the Democrats. The kingdom of God is for the person who is black, for the person who is white, for the person who is Asian or Latino or Latina or any other culture that God and his beauty have made for the world. It's for the poor. It is for the addict. It is for the widowed. It is for the orphaned. It is for the folks in this world who are really, really, really messed up. And it's for you. Are we ready for the kingdom? Do we like that idea? I have a feeling that the, the, one of the things, here's what's going to happen. There will come a day, and I don't know what that looks like. I'm just imagining here. There will be a walkway. I don't know how big it is. I'm assuming it's wider than this. It'll be a walkway. And it's this walkway that approach the, the glory of God that is for all eternity. And there will be people who are walking side by side up to that, that, that place, that existence, that reality. And you know part of what's going to happen during that time, however long that is, let's say it's a, it's a mile and a half long or however long it is, maybe it's only 50 yards. The whole time we're going to be looking around going, what? You're in? And there's going to be someone over here looking at us going, you're in? That, that group is a part of the kingdom? That person that reality is a part of God's kingdom. I believe that so very strongly. And you know what else is going to surprise us? I have a feeling that it will even be some of this. And this saddens me greatly. We're going to look around and go, where are they? Why aren't they a part of the kingdom? That's the challenge of what God is saying here in Jesus is the kingdom is so much bigger than ever we could ever imagine. And it is for us to be a part of it and that is going to be hard and it is going to be unpopular and it is going to put us deeply into relationship with people who are very unlike us, who look different, who act different who we oftentimes disagree with on many things. But the grace of God is big enough for them. We see that here. Naaman. God's grace is big enough. Widow at Zarephath, God's grace is big enough. The person on the other side of whatever coin we sit on ourselves, the kingdom of God can be big enough because God's 
love and grace is big enough. See, here's an interesting thing about this particular text of Scripture. What does it follow? What comes before this text? What's right before it? Anybody? The temptation of Christ. How many temptations were there? There were three temptations, right? You can have the whole world. You can um, feed yourself. uh, You can save yourself. I think this is the fourth temptation of Jesus. I think this is Satan saying, you can tell the people that the kingdom is theirs. You can tell Israel that they can support you because when they do, they're in. That it's all about being what it is that they want to be and how they want to be it. You can do that. And when you do that, what word does the text use? It says, you will be praised. And it's interesting because Jesus responds by what? Doing exactly what he did in the previous passage of the temptation. He responds with the text. And he says to them, this text from Isaiah about the oppression ending, the poor being redeemed, it has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus stands up against the fourth temptation of the devil and he says, God's kingdom is bigger. Friends, for us to hear that, that the temptation can be for us to think the kingdom looks like us and God says, but that's not true. For us to open up our eyes to how big the kingdom of God is and be willing to be a part of the difficult, hard, challenging, backbreaking, bloody, messy work that the kingdom is. That's our call for today. Christ, through the power of the Father and the strength of the word, stood against the temptation. May God equip us to do the same. Let's pray. Thank you, Father for making the kingdom as big as it is. Because it reminds us, Lord, that um, there is room here. There is room here in this place. Geographically, there is room in our hearts. There is room in our idea of the church and in the kingdom for people who are different, people who are um, even challenging to us. That your grace is bigger than we can ever think of or imagine. When we think about your ways, we're reminded in Romans of how they are higher than ours. Your thoughts are larger than ours. And Lord, may we see that for the kingdom that you offer to us. And those, Lord, and I ask, Lord, you prompt us even now in our own minds. Those that you have said, or those that we have said in our own minds, they're out. Those in our own minds that we've given up on. Those in our own minds that we've said, I don't know how it's going to change. For us, Lord, to be willing because you have the power. To you is the glory. For you are the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts and the minds of all those people that we might have given up on. That we might have written off. That we might have forgotten about. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that you equip us with the Holy Spirit to that end that we can see with your eyes then. We can hear with your ears. 
We can be reminded that you are a part of redeeming the oppressed. You are part of loving and serving and caring for the poor. That you are for the widow and the orphan. That you are a part of transforming this world for your kingdom that looks different than what we expect. Lord, may we understand that and then have the courage to live into it. Lord, we pray these things all in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.